This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Today's guest is one of the most requested and popular guests from last season, Professor Hamid Tisush from the Kimia Lab and now of the Mayo Clinic. We talked about so much in his first visit, just getting to the bottom of what exactly is artificial intelligence and so forth, but I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Today, we're going to talk about his experience in the Kimia Lab, what exactly that stands for. AI is such a hot topic. Let's go back and get a baseline definition of artificial intelligence. What are the promises of artificial intelligence? And what about validation? We know about validation in pathology, but what does it mean in the context of artificial intelligence? And what is external validation? And what is supervised versus unsupervised learning? We're going to dive into all this and more on digital pathology today. Amit Tisush from Kimia Lab. Welcome to the podcast, or welcome back to the podcast, I should say. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so tell us, just give us, remind our listeners who may not have heard your episode last season, just what is the Kimia Lab? I think it's a very unique name and you have unique uh, mission and purpose. So tell us a little bit about the history of your lab and what you aim to do there. Sure. So Kimia, the word Kimia stands for Knowledge Inference in Medical Image Analysis uh, Laboratory or short Kimia Lab. So that has some connection to the historic root of chemistry, the word alchemy, which was a pseudoscience basically. But nowadays that old pseudoscience is not valid anymore. So we are not looking to transform metals into gold, but you're trying to find gold in the data. So hence the context, the historic context of um, the Kimia Lab, which happens to be the acronym for Knowledge Inference in Medical Image Analysis. So we were part of, we were a small group of working on medical, inside medical imaging as part of uh, another lab, Pattern Analysis and Machine Intelligence Lab, that was founded in 1980 by Professor Andrew Wong at the University of Waterloo, and I was a member of PAMI. And PAMI was then converted to a center in late 2000s. And in 2013, I took out our group from the PAMI or CPAMI and founded Kimia Lab because I wanted us to focus entirely on medical imaging, not doing AI in general, but just focus on medical image analysis. And that was um, when Kimia Lab was officially launched in uh, September of 2013. Okay, so you have more of a, a broader focus on medical imaging, but I think AI is certainly becoming an increasingly important piece of what we do. And interestingly, you talked about alchemy and pseudoscience and things like that. You know, what always stands out in my mind is that medicine, I think, is still very much an art as well as a science. And even in pathology, right, where we think we're kind of getting to some ground level truths, it still relies on interpretation human experience and human beings making decisions. So I think it's we're getting into very interesting times now where we are applying new technologies to this, such as image analysis and, and machine learning. So I think it's a great time to be involved. So let's talk about artificial intelligence. It's such a hot topic. You know, you said your purpose is not strictly focusing on AI, but the more broader field of imaging, but I think we hear so much about it. It's such a hot topic. A lot of people may not understand even what we're talking about. So maybe let's just start with a rough definition of AI and how it applies to imaging. Well, that, that's a difficult task. <laughs> and whatever you define, probably uh, 
other colleagues may question it. But we may go back to, I believe it was 1956, that a group of legendary computer scientists gathered in Dartmouth on a research project over the summer of 1956, if I'm not mistaken. Renowned computer scientists like Marvin Minsky, John McCarthy, even big names like Cloud Shannon, information theory, and others like John Holland. So they people got there and started brainstorming, and uh, most likely the word, uh, the phrase artificial intelligence was coined there and being understood as any attempt by computers to imitate the ability of intelligent beings to perform tasks that are associated with intelligence. And those tasks are reasoning, understanding meaning, learning from experience, and most importantly, most strikingly, when you learn something by seeing one instance, for example, you see one, as a child, we see one type of car, one type of dog, and one type of tree, and then we generalize to any other instance of that class, any other type of car, any other race of dogs, any other type of tree, and so on. So generalization, so learning, but also being able to generalize because you understand the meaning. And then based on all that, you reason in unknown or new situations. So back in the 50s, people were looking to for proof of that to, let's say, can you, can you, as a computer, can you come up with a proof of mathematical theorems or play chess? But uh, nowadays we are, we have gone a lot deeper to try to understand images, try to understand textual manifestation of human knowledge. So I don't know whether that qualifies as a definition, but that's a really difficult thing to do. So we, we are trying to imitate, when I say we, I understand entire AI community. We are trying to imitate intelligence, not just human intelligence, but mainly human intelligence and being able to reason based on what you learn. I think it's fascinating to keep the historical context in mind. I think in the 1950s, having not been there, but maybe having nostalgia for a time period I had nothing to do with, it seems like it was there was a more fanciful sci-fi version of AI, you know, maybe because it was new, maybe because sci- sci-fi horror type movies featuring UFOs were popular. But I think we had a, and tell me what you think, we had more of view of what we would call generalized artificial intelligence. But then I think as things have evolved, especially because it's hard to define, that we want to more narrow the focus now and come up with discrete or very specific applications in artificial intelligence. That is, can we develop tools or AI systems to solve rather specific problems. Yeah, the audacity of those uh, legendary colleagues who got uh, gathered in that summer of 1956 in Dartmouth was quite impressive. I cannot imagine what that gathering would have been, and that was a research gathering for over several weeks. If Alan Turing would have been alive, if I'm not mistaken, he passed away two years before that, but the group that was there actually conceived a lot of ideas that we still understand as general artificial intelligence. And uh, they were envisioning things that from in the context of 50s and 60s were outrageous. They were talking about general problem solvers. So having, having frameworks, computerized frameworks that can basically solve any problem. So that's from today's perspective is still audacious to even say something like that. And if you're 
Google Scholar page does not show 100,000 citations, people will discredit you as a serious scientist if you, if you talk about things like this. But yeah, so from those early days, the science fiction type of visionary conceptions has stayed with us. And that's a good thing because we need those visions to move in that direction. We have been able to implement and understand only a fraction of it, but that's the way things work. We try to reach for, for the stars and then we just grab a light bulb. So, and then that's okay. Then we take it the next step to see where we are going. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about reasoning and problem solving and maybe let's take a step back here. Cause what always fascinates me is a lot of what we do in medicine is what you would call proof by induction, right? To try, you know, like you're saying, you recognize a car and then can you generalize it, which is kind of what we do in medicine or clinical medicine is we show that it's something's true for a small set of patients. Then we try to generalize these conclusions to everybody, basically. And I believe that's called reasoning by induction. Whereas, you know, what we do in problem solving in pathology a lot of times is reasoning by deduction, which is maybe more self-contained, easier to get a handle on. So say we get an unknown tumor and then we do a set of immunohistochemistry stains, you know, we say, well, is this epithelial? Is this lymphoid? Does this express this, that, or the other markers? And then we kind of narrow the focus down. So in image analysis, what type of reasoning and what type of logic are we using? Is it more proof by induction or proof by deduction? Well, it depends what type of AI technology we use that can be defined in a top-down or bottom-up uh, approach. At the moment, it seems that the low-hanging fruit that everybody is going after are quantification of common tasks or common measures, uh, common measures that we need in computational pathology. And uh, that happens apparently with the motivation that we want to bring not just more efficiency, being faster, but also more consistency. So at the moment, I would say any AI technology that is being employed in computational pathology, and most of it is happening on the research side, and things are getting picked up for clinical utilities, most of it is not taking the last step. Most of it is not making any decision. Most of it is just trying to bring objective measurements, quantification of things that have been done in the past based on subjective evaluation of visual inspection. Most of it is now can be quantified by computers reliably, consistently, in a very efficient manner, comparably. And then we still leave the final decision-making and reasoning to the pathologist, at least for the short period of time, for the short term, that's the path that seems to have more chance by getting accepted. We should not forget that computational pathology is fundamentally aiming at digital pathology, although there are also snapshots of microscopes, but the full scale of computational pathology comes in place when we digitize the pathology entirely, and that's a process ongoing. So how can we fully exploit AI for the final reasoning, complex task, if the digitization of pathology is still ongoing and we do not have the entire pathology community behind us for diagnostic purposes? Yeah, that's interesting you say that the having the entire pathology community behind us, because I think people kind of see the end game. They suspect, well, someday 
the computer AI is going to be making all the decisions, start to finish, and we'll be able to diagnose the case. My senses were a very long way away from that. And there's maybe some fear and apprehension about it. And then kind of the low-hanging fruit, like you're saying, is more, much more palatable to people. Say, well, we're just getting machines to do things that they're better suited for, like measuring things, counting things, doing more repetitive tasks, doing more highly quantitative tasks. And then certainly we can use that computing power to draw conclusions, which will hopefully advance the care of patients. But where are we? Is that the end game that people say for, or suspect? First of all, is that an accurate portrayal of the future? And then where are we on, on this journey? Are we still in the very early stages or are we you know, almost there to the point where an AI could make a diagnosis? So initial results and success stories that we hear from the computational pathology research groups that most of them or all of them have also adopted AI to perform computational pathology. Most of them are doing detection, segmentation, classification of anatomic structures from cells to tissue types and organs. And uh, based on everything that we are reading, all those crucial tasks like detecting something, segmenting something for measurement and classifying for assisting in the decision-making, not just take it as a uh, decision, but take it as an indicator of a final decision. All of them are being reported that are uh, relatively good, but it seems that AI community still has uh, a lot of homework to do, among others, working more closely with pathologists and adopting the more rigorous testing and validation procedures in, within the medical field, such that we can move on. But if you're talking about down the road in terms of 50 years from now, perhaps, yes, most decisions will be made by computers. For the foreseeable future, I do not see that we take the human operator out of the loop. The pathologist will always be there for the foreseeable future, as we have not eliminated the radiologist. We have, we have given radiologists a lot of tools in the past 30 years, but the radiologist is still there and uh, still doing the job. And uh, somebody needs to be there to take the responsibility as long as computers or failing the Turing test in being completely at the level of humans. And we are far away from that. We cannot talk about naming the streets on Mars if we are light years away from conquering the Mars. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, what strikes me is that the number of use cases in pathology, so to speak, is almost infinite, right? It's almost infinitely complex what tasks or what features or what a human pathologist is looking for in the microscope. Or you could argue that there's a very long tail, right? Maybe most cases, uh, the bulk of specimens in pathology have very specific questions. So probably prostate biopsies, breast biopsies, skin biopsies, which maybe make up the bulk of specimens. And the question is generally the same, is, is there cancer here or not, is ultimately the question. Those are very specific questions where you can develop very narrow focused AI solutions to answer those, but say inflammatory conditions, liver biopsies, kidney biopsies, things like that, there's so many variations on things that we see and what we're trying to diagnose that it's a it's a very long tail, I think. So maybe we might come up with solutions to get the big ones to answer the big questions. Is it prostate cancer or breast cancer? But I think we're probably a long way away from answering every possible nuance, every possible question that could come up. Yes. I mean, the main reason that uh, I personally switched from radiology to pathology was, among others, that from computer science perspective, computational pathology is what we call intractable. 
So if you put it in a numerical framework, it's not a question that you can take a computer as big as the planet Earth and then run it for several months and solve the problems, any problem that you come. So you cannot solve the computational pathology problem with the sheer power of computers. And that's where deep learning become really, really, really significant because for the first time, things that we said they would not be tractable, so within reasonable amount of time, we cannot solve them, so to speak, became solvable because we got access to deep learning and modern, modern approaches in AI. So, and then you have a pathology is infinite number of patterns, infinite number of combinations, infinite number of possibilities that things can get. Uh, you look at a piece of a specimen and two, three different diagnoses are possible, and then you have to select one as primary diagnosis. And uh, it's the end of the line. Nobody checks the pathologist. So that, that was really fascinating for me to find out that if the pathologist make a mistake, only another pathologist can take a look and say, <laughs> okay, I would do it this way. There is nobody after pathologist, which not just shows the significance of pathology, but also shows how crucial, how significant, how pivotal the work is. And that's the fascination for a computer scientist or biomedical engineer to get involved in such a significant, crucial task. And we have to throw everything we have at it to solve the computational pathology problem, which is understand histology, understand pathology, understand cytology from the cellular structures up to the organs, which is immense. This will be, if the day that we have it, we have completed a, a huge revolution in the history of science and medicine. Yeah. Going back to this theme of it being an art as well as a science, I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. Do we say those kinds of things just because we simply don't know enough about what we're doing and it becomes an art? Like a lot of times, you know, in these cases, like you said, there's no one to check the pathologist's work, but another pathologist. And a lot of times there is no right answer. As far as we know right now, it's more descriptive, right? You could have yeah. the world's top pathologist in a certain subspecialty and basically all they're doing is being descriptive. Like I see this pattern of inflammation and we're not even really sure what it means, but I suppose we're going to get, as we are able to learn more and more, we're going to be able to come up with criteria and systems for classification and quantification of disease. How do we go about that in machine learning? Let's talk about the differences between terms we hear a lot, supervised learning versus unsupervised learning. What do these terms mean and, and why is it important? Well, that's a big topic, as you mentioned, yes. And uh, at the moment, all success stories that have come basically after 2012, starting in the mid-90s and then with some breakthroughs in early 2000s and then the first practical success in 2012 and afterwards, all of it is because of deep networks, which are supervised structures, which means you have to teach them. So learning may or may not need a teacher, also for us humans, not just for computers. And most of the time, it may be a mixture of them that somebody teaches us a little bit and then the rest of the way we will figure things out on our own. Being an autodidactical human being is a really a virtue. Many, many people in the history of art, for example, have been people who have taught themselves how to do things. But at the end of the day, for many things that techniques are involved, you need a teacher. So you may be very gifted, but techniques and tricks, somebody needs to teach you that. So if you have a teacher in some way, then that's a supervised learning. So somebody is supervising you. If 
there is no teacher and you are learning as you go by maybe by interacting with the environment, then this is unsupervised, which can be weekly supervised, self-supervised, and so on and so on. So in computers, the teacher is always there implicitly. The teacher is not explicitly there, which means whatever the problem is, you have instances of the problem, instances of different versions and formats of the question, and then some knowledgeable human being has come up with answers for those questions, the right answers, and say, okay, if you get this question, this is the right answer. If you get this question, this is the right answer. If you get this group of pixel, this is adenocarcinoma. If you get this group of pixel, this is papillary carcinoma, and so on and so on. So examples. So this is when we say supervised learning is fundamentally learning from examples, and examples have been provided by a good, reliable teacher. And the more you have, the better it is. So you need thousands and thousands, ideally millions of examples. When we talk about a complicated field like computational pathology, you have millions of examples that if you see because you have to learn at the same time that you learn histology, you have to learn histopathology. So what is normal, what is abnormal? But sometimes people learn by themselves on their own, so unsupervised, which is really the hallmark of human intelligence. Unsupervised learning is the type of learning that we need to make sure that we, the learning happens continuously without any disruption. And you can adjust to any unseen, unknown environment and situation. So at the moment, we have a lot of success with supervised technique. The challenge with supervised AI is that preparing those examples in computational pathology is tedious, extremely time-consuming, and subject to variability. But when you use supervised AI, it's quite precise, at least for the respective domain. But if you tested for external validation, it would collapse. So providing examples in computational pathology, which we can call labeling data, annotating data, delineating images, is basically telling when you get this in type of input, you should guess the type of output. So if you get this input, this should be the output. And you have to do that for thousands and thousands of samples. For images, of course, somebody who is an experienced pathologist, has to sit down and delineate regions of interest and say, so this group of people, this tissue type, it means this. This tissue type means this. So, of course, that manual delineation highlighting regions of interest in a gigantic whole slide image in pathology is a very tedious task. And even if you hire a pathologist that just do that, that's a very ungrateful task. It's not it requires a lot of intelligence and knowledge, but it's not a popular task for pathologists because they, are, they can do a lot more different, more exciting tasks. But when you do that, still you have it just for one pathologist. And we know that opinions, subjective evaluations can vary. So how can I trust that delineations that I use as label for my supervised AI? So right. if you go unsupervised, there is no teacher, there is no pathologist. You may have some indirect help or weak supervision, or you are mainly operating as self-supervised technologies. If you do that, so if there is nobody to teach you, you may, as at least predecessors of strong AI, you will go after discovering patterns, rules, similarities, and correlations. Examples are clustering, dimensionality reduction, search, visualization, and so on. Yeah. 
So which of these approaches can lead us closer to the truth? If there is even such a thing as the truth, because, you know, I've been involved in kind of these unglamorous tasks where basically you get a, it's kind of a numbers game, right? You get a lot of cases and many pathologists, because basically you're taking in a supervised environment, like you're describing, it's the pathologist's subjective, hopefully well-informed subjective opinion about what he or she is looking at, right? Is this cancer or not? What type of cell is this? And it's annotated. And then that's used to teach the model. But then in unsupervised, it's teaching itself. So is there any inkling as to where we can get better results or do we ultimately arrive at the same point? Yeah. So we have to go back to one of the fathers of AI, to Alan Turing. So any AI that it can become as best case scenario, it can become as smart as its teacher, the human being, by definition, and as impressive as it may be, it will not be strong AI. It will be supervised AI, it will be limited, and it will not cause a Terminator scenario of conquering the planet and killing human beings. So among others, if you're afraid of that. But the upper bound, the upper limit of intelligence for a supervised AI is the human intelligence. And human intelligence is as impressive as it may be, the result of million years of evolution is quite limited. Among others, human intelligence and human capabilities cannot deal with mass data. We cannot understand millions of histopathology slides at the same time and realize correlations and similarities to extract rules and patterns. That's where humans are really bad. You understand instances very well. We can specialize, but we cannot sit down and go over millions of cases to find correlation, let's say, for drug discovery. Computers are really good, theoretically, but they have not been very capable so far in doing that. Now deep learning is there, AI is there, and now the horizon is really opening up that now we can access huge archives, mass data, and then try to find relationships that are hidden to us, that are not visible, not accessible to us. It doesn't matter how good of a pathologist you are. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. You cannot possibly process that level of information. That's where AI will shine in the near future. So to go in and find relationships and similarities that we cannot see as humans. And what type of new fields will open up? Nobody knows. Everything is a speculation. But we can see relationship for demographic, for diet, for environmental impact, for drug use, and so on and so on. Things that, again, when we are sitting in our office as a pathologist and doing diagnosis, we cannot possibly see those things. Right. Yeah, there's so much there. And what we used to call experience, or I guess we still do, that's what makes a good pathologist experience. Well, I've seen a lot of these cases. I recognize that pattern. But maybe it's not as reliable as we think, or maybe it's the best we had up until now. And you talked about validation. I think it's just something we're all familiar with in pathology and laboratory medicine. That is, we need our tests to perform up to a certain standard and do what we claim that they do. So what does that mean in the setting of artificial intelligence? And you also mentioned external validation. So that means presumably taking the conclusions that you've drawn and comparing that to an external standard. How does that work? Within the AI community, there is an established, well-established approach to implement the Turing test. So which is, how would I know that my software is smart, is intelligent? So then what the Turing test has implied in practice will take the shape of a chain of experiments 
that we call train validate test. So you take your data, which is again the label data, because this is super about supervised learning and supervised AI. You take your data and you divide it basically in three parts in a random way because you don't want to be biased by any existing order and bias in the data. So you divide it in three parts, the data that you have, you take the big chunk of that three sets and train something with it, a deep network, let's say. And then with a smaller part, you validate to see whether it's good enough. So, and you train, validate, train, validate, train, validate. And the validation gives you then the best results so far. You take that out and say, okay, now you can test it. And you test just one time because you chose the best approach, the best model, the best computer model through validation. So this is what we have been doing for quite some time, for decades, actually. And the underlying assumption in AI community has been that there is one domain, so that the problem has been instance. So the main purpose of conventional AI validation is to ascertain generalization with respect to instances of the problem. And when we have assumed, when we have operated or assumed to operate within one and the same domain, uh, to give you an example of what that means, if computer algorithms are recognizing the photos of dogs and cats, and those, the images of dogs and cats have been collected from the internet, there is no domain. So it doesn't matter if the photos of the dogs and cats came from Germany or from China, who took those images, it doesn't matter. So we are concerned with the instances, so different type of dogs, but we are not worried about the source of the image. Now, in pathology, the domain is absolutely crucial. The domain is the hospital, is the source of the image for many different reasons, because the imaging protocols are different. We have uh, demographic differences, the staining and other lab procedures may be different. So a lot of difference will come in the domain. You cannot mix, just take, so adenocarcinoma from this hospital may be a bit different from the adenocarcinoma another hospital. So if you do the conventional AI train validate test, so you get a high accuracy, you get 95% accuracy and everybody is screaming and say, oh, fantastic, AI solved the computational pathology now. But if you go and do what has been quite common in medicine, that you externally validate, so whatever hypothesis you have, you go and apply it on the data from another source, another domain, another hospital, not just another patient, not another instance, but another domain. So, and then you, what you do, you do train, validate, test, external validate. So that's where the AI community is struggling to get that. So if you go to typical AI conferences, they don't do external validation. They just take whatever data they have, they put it in one place, because again, they assume is everything is, has one source, and then just try to train with one set of data and validate and test with unseen data. But that's not enough. So when we externally validate AI solutions, all of them that I know of and I have seen, all of them collapse, which means if they had provided test accuracy of 95%, when we externally validate, they drop to 60%, 70%, 50%, which means 
they are failing the actual Turing test, which means they are not capable of generalizing, which means we may be forced to develop solutions for individual hospitals, and hospitals may not be able to consistently use a, a technology across, for everybody, which would be a huge concern. So I think AI communities are still struggling to adopt the concept of external validation, and the pathology community has been quite slow to provide standardized cases as external validation for different purposes. Yeah, I think there's the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, in my mind, this has been a problem for a long time, unrelated to digital pathology, but in laboratory medicine, where there's always, pathologists like to do things their own way. They have their own protocols for doing things. They bring up their own laboratory-developed tests. And really, I think what we're many people think we should be striving for is a level of standardization that's applicable to all patients and that can be done in any hospital. So it seems like maybe we're taking a step backward or headed towards a kind of a dystopian future where we have different standards. Depending on which hospital you get your biopsy in, it will be analyzed by a, a different uh, digital or computational pathology system. And I think it kind of brings into focus these pre-analytical features, which maybe we take for granted. The formal fixation protocol, the staining procedure, the pinks and the purple dyes that we're using to stain the slides. As human beings, we say, okay, I can look at this from Community General Hospital. I know it's cancer. And then I can go over there to the world's best hospital and, oh, yep, it's cancer over there too. And we've taken that for granted. I mean, how important is standardizing the things, the pre-analytical processing that we've taken for granted maybe over the last 50 to 100 years? How important or how big of a deal is that going to be? Or how is that going to hinder moving forward towards uniform standards? Well, standards are important. And uh, at the moment, everything is in flux. Everything is dynamic. Everything is fluid. And uh, perhaps it will stay for some time after the pandemic until some major initiatives establish some norms, then, then committees will form as usual, and then we try to come up with some set of rules and guidelines and hopefully standards. As much as we standardize the process of image in the lab and image acquisition, that would help, of course, down the road to also to computerize techniques. But it's a two-way street. Basically, uh, computerized techniques can also help to bring about those standards. We can normalize the staining. We can... Uh, bring more objectivity in several steps of the laboratory medicine, starting from recognizing contaminations and foreign tissue up to automatically triaging them. Many, many things that we can bring in to help establish those standards. But at the end of the day, all those standards will also help the AI techniques and non-AI techniques, computer vision techniques, and machine learning in general to be more useful and to be more easily more useful. So which at the moment is quite, I'm criticizing the AI community as I see myself being part of multiple communities. So I have, I'm not hesitant to criticize anybody because the only group that I will not criticize are the patients. So because everything should be done for the patient. Otherwise, nobody has a green card here that because we published some papers, nobody can criticize me. And the AI community is not doing enough to adopt external validation for rigorous. I find it absolutely irresponsible to publish papers if you have not done external validation. But we all are doing it because basically we don't have any other choice. Because last time I did an external validation for a kidney, 
and we just finished it. It took, it basically delayed our research eight months to get the external data. So, and that's a point of concern for researchers because then you lose traction. You cannot really contribute if you have to wait that long for data and guidelines from the pathology community. Yeah, so standardization, I think, is a big problem, not only as we talked about in pre-analytical processing, but every step along the way in digital pathology to the scanners, to the AI systems, the interoperability, to file formats, and so forth. And one of the promises of digital pathology is the ability to be able to share images right across domains, so to speak, or institutions. And these images need to be accessible and archived. So let's talk about that. What is image archiving? Before, you know, in the old days, we used to pull up a memory in our brain, like, oh, that's what that looks like. I remember a case from 1975 where this patient had this unusual cancer. I'd never seen anything like it. Now we're able to search images which have been archived in some way, which is fascinating. So how does this work, first of all? So what does it mean to archive images? What features or methods are we using to do that? And then how do you go about searching for these images? Sure. So I myself, and Kimia Lab, in particular, we are entirely focused on image search because we are convinced that search is a major part of the future medicine. When we digitize images in any way, then we put them in an archive of like PACs, the picture archiving systems that are existing, and radiology has been using them for decades. And PACs or archiving systems use standards like DICOM for storage retrieval, transmitting, and working on the, on the data, images, reports, genetic, patient information, everything that may also be available in other databases, in other archives within the hospital, but you have to be able to communicate with them. So at the moment, we can search for reports, we can search for lab results because they are all text, and text search is a solved problem widely, but we cannot search for images. Okay. I cannot upload an image on my phone and say, I have a biopsy sample like this. I have a tissue sample like this. I don't know what that is. Has anybody seen some? Well, there are groups on Facebook that do that. Pathologists on the Facebook do that. So they show photos of tissue samples to each other and say, have you seen? And they upload images at multiple magnification, which is a very small thing to do. But we cannot do it at the moment in any hospital to really search for images. The technology is there but it needs to be implemented in a clinical setting, and that has some challenges. If you can search, you can compare cases against evidently diagnosed cases, so the evidence of the past becomes accessible. But also, the big picture that I was alluding to, that we cannot see that big picture if you look at a million cases. Through search, completely new doors get opened, and we can go in and search for similarities, and then you see, oh, if I go Zoom at 20x, prostate and lung become quite similar if the abnormality is adenocarcinoma and I get too close. Okay, this is a benign, fun fact that every experienced pathology will smile at you and say, of course, what have you expected? So when you get too close, you may confuse things. But more important things can be found if we go in and start searching. And searching is that you take an input and you try to find similar anatomy, similar histology. And at the moment, our understanding of search is very rudimentary, very primitive, I want to say. Search 
will develop different phases. Search of the future will be multimodal. Search of the future will come up with interpretable visualization. And search of the future will be, in, especially in the archives of histopathology images, will be indispensable for reliable diagnosis and treatment planning. So, but at, from today's perspective, we have to just go in and implement a simple, straightforward type of search that we can handle the technological challenge, get it done, get it into the hand of pathologists, validate that properly over a year or two, and then see then what we can add. But perhaps the multimodal comprehensive search that we have in mind probably will not come within the next two, three years because we still have, again, so we, you need, I had a discussion with um, colleagues from the pathology department and one of the colleagues asked me, okay, how many patients do you need to really show me? And I said, well, okay, give me a million. Give me a million whole slide images digitized. And then we can show what we can do with search. And hopefully we can find out things that we could have never guessed that this type of tasks are possible. So search is extremely exciting because it's unsupervised is definitely part of the future AI, definitely something we need when the mass of billions and millions of images are being captured and they are connected to reports, they are connected to genome, they are connected to patient information. And there is no way that we can do that in, as supervised AI. We have to use some unsupervised technology and clustering and search are the two major ones that are readily available. Yeah, I think the, the urge or the desire or tendency to search is uh, very much innate. It's very first-year pathology resident trainee. You see an unknown conference, you see challenging cases, and immediately you go back to the textbook and try to flip through that thing and see if you can find an image that matches your challenging case. Very primitive. And particularly when the pathologist is unsure of the diagnosis. You want to share the case. Have you ever seen anything like this? You're showing your colleagues, you're posting it on social media. But in the future, are we going to, so you alluded to multimodality searches. So that, are we going to be able to search, say, by histologic features, say, find me all the cases that have a mitotic rate of three per high powered field, or find me all the cases that have a tumor density of 10%. We'll be able to do things like that. But then are we going to be able to layer on things like, well, how about men aged 54 to 65? How about patients with this clinical history? How about patients with these known mutations or a liquid biopsy showing germline mutations in this, that, and the other gene? Is it going to be multidimensional like that? Absolutely. That's the vision that you hear here and there when you talk to uh, computational pathology labs who are trying to push the research forward. That's basically, we have to move on from tissue representation, which is the focus of most papers right now, and we have done also our share to represent tissue, move on to patient representation. And that's the future. So that would take us the next, I would say, three to four years to just establish the framework for patient representation. If the data comes, if the data doesn't come, it may take longer. So when you represent tissue, you're just talking about the biopsy sample. When you want to represent the patient, which is what is in the head of every pathologist, is biopsy plus the history plus a diagnosis plus treatment plus genome plus everything else that is available. So the pathologist does not make the decision just by looking at the histology. There is a lot of other inference 
systems that are going on in the brain of the pathologist when they make decisions and they discuss the case. So we need that patient representation, which is somebody may say, okay, you want to learn medicine. Well, a, a small part of the medicine, a really a good anatomic pathologist that can write and read and understand uh, reports, diagnostic reports, and put them in context can maybe suggest a, a treatment based on experience, can look at the histology structures and morphology and put it in perspective with respect to the gene expression and RNA sequencing and all that. So this is much more than just looking at the pixel, which is what we are doing at the moment. So just looking at the biopsy. That This is unimodal tissue representation. This is unimodal learning. So we have to go multimodal. And if I talk about that, my students are the first one to complain and say, wow, where, where do we get the data? Well, we are working to create the data and to have collaborations with hospitals who are willing uh, to share data in some protected way, anonymized data that were no, nobody's privacy is jeopardized. But that's true. The problem of not having access to data and no standardized way of external validation becomes even more critical when we uh, cross the bridge from tissue representation to patient representation, which requires a lot more data. That's where definitely AI can really shine because this is then putting things in perspective and uh, coming up with things that and not even the best pathologists can do. But that's, as the Germans would say, that's the music of future. So that's dreaming a little bit for the next two, three decades. Okay. Yeah. Moving from tissue representation to patient representation. Yeah. Hamid Tisush from Kimia Lab, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, maybe just tell us what excites you in the short term about this exciting field. Where do you see things going in the next five to 10 years or so? The next uh, five to 10 years, beside of the research that I just mentioned, and everybody will try to contribute to that, my excitement is I want to get things to the hospitals. I want to do everything I can that we implement some of this old research results and bring them to clinical utility and then walking through the floors of a hospital and see that patient lives and well-beings are being positively affected of what we do. So the patient needs come first, have always been first, and all of us, our loved ones can be that patient. So I want to see AI at work, at the bedside, uh, working and really making positive impact on the health of patients. Yeah, making a difference for patients. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what we're all in it for. Well, our guest has been Hamid Tishus from the Chemia Lab. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it for having me. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.